Okay, please open your Bibles to Acts of the Apostles. And I just finished with going through the First Corinthians, and it made sense to look at Acts of the Apostles. And I would say to you all, if you get a chance to read Luke in conjunction with Acts, Dr. Luke was a medical doctor, and after he wrote his Gospel of Luke, he wrote Acts of the Apostles. He's a very thorough individual. He starts his account of the Lord's ministry going into the early church, which covers a 30-year period from verse 1. The former treatise, Salamado Theopolis, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up. After that, he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, and being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, ye have heard of me. Treatise, chapter 1, verse 1, is an old English term for a thorough investigation, a detailed report. And Luke, as I say, was a medical doctor, so he probably wrote reports to people that he knew. And Theopolis, we're not sure who this individual was, but he was obviously important enough to warrant this incredible book being addressed to him. And he says in verse 2, until the day in which he was taken up, raptured. After that, he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles. To understand chapter 2, you have to understand chapter 1, because the context is in reference to the apostles. An apostle can be a disciple, but a disciple cannot be an apostle. An apostle is someone who was handpicked by the Lord. An apostle was someone that saw the Lord, who walked with the Lord for three and a half years. Paul would be the exception. He's called an apostle. He saw the Lord after the resurrection from Acts 9. Barnabas is also called an apostle. But Barnabas, I believe, was quite possibly one of the 70. Hence why he is in this category uh, when it comes to being an apostle. Verse 3, it goes on to say, To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. Infallible means infallible. And I believe most Bibles post-1880 have taken the word infallible out, but it's found in your King James Bible. Being seen of them, the 11, 40 days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is physical and it's spiritual. For those of us which are alive today and are saved, we are in the spiritual kingdom of God. But at the same advent, there will be a literal kingdom of God. In verse 4, and being assembled together with them, the 12 or the 11 to be precise, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. Up until this time, the Lord had been the provider for the apostles. They couldn't do anything without him, and he met their every need. But once he went back to heaven, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit was sent not only from heaven down to earth, but he would enter the apostles, he would indwell the apostles, he would fill the apostles. Pre the new covenant, the Holy Spirit would only anoint kings and priests to lead them, to guide them. But post the old covenant, going into the new covenant, the Holy Spirit is in each and every one of us. And on top of that, the Son of God lives within us, as does God the Father. So we have the triunity living within us. But it says here, for John truly baptized with water, literal water, but ye, all of you, shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. 
we are put into the body of Christ once we are born again. We found very clearly from 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that the moment we believe on him, the moment we call on him, the moment we receive him, we are baptized by a supernatural act into the body of Christ. Water puts you into water, but the Holy Spirit puts you into the body of Christ. It's a one-off act, and once you are in the body of Christ, you are there forever. Nobody can separate you from the love of God. If you don't believe me, look at Romans chapter 8. Let's look at verse 6, please. When they therefore were come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Lord, are you going to bring the Davidic kingdom into place? Lord, are you going to keep the Romans out? They were desirous of the Lord's return. And we should be desirous of the Lord's return. If you look at church history, around about the Reformation time, all of the reformers, apart from John Calvin, were greatly desirous of the Lord to return. And this early group of Christians were very desirous of him to return. And I believe up until probably Acts 9, they all thought that he could come back straight away. And we get to chapter 7, you'll see Stephen being martyred and Christ is standing on the right hand of the Father, which means he's ready to come back. At that point in time, he was ready to come back and initiate his literal Davidic kingdom. But of course, the church age was still to come. Paul hadn't yet been called to reveal the gospel of the grace of God, which means you've got at least nine chapters of saved men, but still very much under the old covenant, still not quite sure how the church age is going to work, very much in need of Paul. And some people say, well, what Peter's going to preach in chapter 2 uh, was only part of the truth. And I am a semi-dispensationist. And I will say this, that Acts chapter 2 for today is problematic. There's no blood atonement in Acts chapter 2. But we'll get to that when we get to chapter 2. But what I get from chapter 6 is a desirous or a great hope that the Lord is going to restore again the kingdom to Israel. He's going to kick out Herod. Pontius Pilate and all of the other wicked leaders and sit on his literal throne. It wasn't time because the church age was to come. Look at verse 7. And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father had put in his own power. A slight put down, but don't misinterpret this. What I get from this really is that nobody in the early church was privy to the Lord's plan, to the Lord's will. There's no paper infallibility here. Peter didn't know what was going on. James and John didn't know what was going on. And please remember that James and John were cousins of the Lord. And yet they didn't know what was going on. And that's why you were told in Matthew 24, no one knows the time, nor the place, the hour, the precise moment. Not even the Son, because at this point in the Lord's ministry, he was still in the flesh, but the Father. So when someone says to you, we know when the Lord is going to return. No, they don't know when the Lord is going to return. He could come back at a moment's presence, and we all live in anticipation for the rapture, but no one knows the exact time when he's going to come back. And this is interesting because, as I say, the apostles were completely oblivious, they were completely in the dark, they were completely unaware of the timing of the Lord's return, but you can't fault them. They've just seen their beloved master crucified, tortured to death, and they are under great persecution, and they were living in anticipation for his imminent return as we are in the 21st century. Verse 8, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Uttermost parts of the earth. We're going to go out from Jerusalem. And yet chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, they're so 
very much surrounded by Israel. They're still very much in Israel. They're still very much tuned and focused on the temple of Israel. They couldn't really understand that they were going to do greater things in this. And that's why when Christ says, you'll do greater things than I will, he doesn't mean greater miracles. He means greater in scope. You're going to go to the ends of the earth. You're going to be martyred for me. And you're going to write the New Testament. And yes, they did signs and wonders. Of course they did. But to do greater things meant just that, to cover the globe. And also from here it says, you shall receive power, authority. After that, the Holy Ghost will come upon you. And all of you will be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And they mention the tongues there. Power, authority from the Holy Ghost. When they would speak in tongues, they would raise the dead. They would do signs and wonders like no one did before them or after them. And yet tongues is not mentioned there once. And yet tongues is mentioned probably more times than any other sign gift when it comes to people that are interested in the signs and wonders and yet the fruits of the Spirit. Found very clearly in Galatians 5 is where our focus should be. Verse 9. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Ascension, cloud, perhaps the Shehinah glory. And please understand one thing, that they saw him go up, the church, and the church will see him come back at the rapture. If you look at Matthew 2 and Luke 2, there's two aspects of the Lord's first coming. The first time he comes, and he's only revealed to the shepherds, secret gathering and the shepherds I think represent the church and later the wise men arrive and they go into Jerusalem and they ask where is he that is born king of the Jews which pictures the second advent Matthew 24 where the whole world gets to see him but here in verse 9 only the church only the 11 to be precise saw him go up and only the church will see him come back in the rapture I will say this is a quick footnote I won't rule out the possibility of the 70 being there to see this and I won't rule out the possibility of the women being there to see this as well, but the context here is Apostles, chapter 1, verse 2. And if you keep that in mind, when you get to chapter 2, you'll understand who the recipients were when it came to receiving the gift of speaking in tongues, known languages, not learned behavior, not gibberish, not devil possession, but known languages. Verse 10. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner, as ye have seen him go into heaven. Two men in white apparel. Could it be Moses and Elijah? Not sure. We know that from Matthew 28, when the Lord was resurrected, the angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and he rolled away the stone and sat upon the stone. That's victory. Not to let Christ out of the tomb, of course, but to let the apostles in. And here, two men in white apparel, more likely to be angels, I would say, than Moses and Elijah, are saying to the apostles, why are you gazing up into heaven? Get back to Jerusalem, there's work to be done. This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner, as ye have seen him go into heaven. He went up in the rapture, through a cloud, and he'll come back on a cloud, and we know from Revelation chapter 1 how every eye will see him, and they're going to mourn for him. They're going to weep for him, not in anticipation, not in a sense of welcoming his return, but in dread, because he comes back as the son of David to rule and reign. He came the first time as the lamb, as the son of Joseph, to suffer, to be crucified, 
to be mocked, to be spat upon, to be treated with contempt. But at the second coming, he's coming back to put all of his enemies down. And I'll say this to you, if you're not saved, you're lost, and if you're lost, you're damned. And that's your choice. You have the right to be saved or unsaved. God has given man free will, but it's my prayer and hope on this Lord's Day service to please examine yourself to make sure you're saved and if you are saved but, but backslidden to repent to come back into fellowship with the Lord verse 12 then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet which is from Jerusalem a Sabbath day's journey Olivet the mount of Olivet could be a possible location for the second advent and this mount was a very high mount. All the mounts in Israel are very high. And sometimes when you look at mounts in high places, you wonder why the Jews were so infatuated with high places where they were sacrificed to devils. Solomon went up to the high places. Samuel went up to the high places. I film most of my videos on high places. But again, the high place isn't the issue. It's what you do on the high place. And the Lord took him up to the highest Spot outside of Jerusalem, and that was the last time that they would see him. And from verse 12 onwards, they're going to live by faith. Yes, Paul saw a few visions in Acts, and Peter would see a vision in chapter 10. But by and large, they're going to live by faith, and we live by faith. The just shall live by faith. And when people say, the Lord appeared to me, he spoke to me, really? If he was appearing to people, if he was appearing to people, that kind of undermines faith. But nevertheless, you need to examine all these things in light of Scripture. Otherwise, you're going to be deceived. Because we know there's another Jesus out there, found in Scripture. There's another spirit out there, found in Scripture. And there's another church out there, found in Scripture. Verse 13. And when they were coming, they went up into the upper room, where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon, Zealous, and Judas, the brother, of James. Jude, Judas, is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jude, or Judas, from the tribe of Judah, wrote the epistle of Jude. As a half-brother, he was saved. And it says he was a brother of James. Another half-brother of the Lord, also saved. And to the best of my knowledge, only Luke tells us about Jude, Judah, Judas, being one of the twelve. This is a an issue which comes down to carefully studying the word of God because Matthew and Mark don't list Jude as one of the twelve, but Luke does. And I'm still investigating that to try and understand myself why there's a slight discrepancy as to the listing of the twelve. But what's more important to me here, or more of interest to me here, is verse 14. These all continue with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brethren. Mary is found in 13th place. I hope all our Catholic listeners notice that. Mary, the Queen of Heaven, this omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent woman, who we are told by Catholic tradition, was bodily assumed in the heaven when she died. But the Holy Spirit, who inspired this book, lists her in 13th place, which is slightly unusual. If she was the Queen of Heaven, if she is this great power, if she sits at the right hand of God, or the left hand of God, if she is sitting by the throne of God, as Catholics would have us believe, why is she found in 13th place? And I'll say this to you after Acts 1, 14, she's never found again. 
directly or indirectly. This upper room, found in verse 13, was their meeting place. We will discover later on how they are fearful. They are locking the doors. They are terrified that the Jews are going to find them and kill them. Sometimes fear can be a good thing. Sometimes fear can be a bad thing. But what I get from this is how the apostles are human. They have their flaws as we have our flaws. And if we think we're something special, read the word of God and you will see how the best of the best were fearful. But verse 14 says one more time, These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. That's the 11. With the women, probably Mary Magdalene, Joanna, some of the other women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. Now we know from Mark 6 how there are at least three sisters mentioned, and probably three or four brothers. So this term, brethren, would probably include his sisters as well. Something happened post the resurrection for his siblings to get saved. We know from John 7, pre the crucifixion, how no one or none of his brethren believed on him apart from Jude and James. And like I say, if you get the chance, read Matthew, Mark, and Luke and examine, please, why only some of the writers list one group of twelve apostles, whereas Dr. Luke gives you Jude as a as an alternative. Something happened or there was a change that took place which was not told about in Scripture to include Jude as one of the twelve. But here, I say Mary is found in 13th place, which suggests to me she was nothing special. Yes, she gave birth to the Lord, but we know from, I think it's Luke 11 or 12, when a lady came to the Lord and says, Blessed are the paps which thou sucks. And he says, No, blessed are those that hear the word of God and do it. She was important. She was saved. Of course she was. But she's found here in 13th place. She's not all that important. And his brethren here are saved. Which shows a saved family. Which shows that it's God's will for families to be saved. And sometimes one person gets saved. And it takes years for someone else to get saved. But it's the Lord's will, I would say anyway, for families to be saved. But we know from experience that's not always the case. Verse 15, and in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, the number of names together were about 120. Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. Peter standing up, Peter will take the lead here. Peter was given the keys in Matthew 16, but after chapter 10, Paul takes over. Peter stands up in the midst of the disciples, one group of people, and he goes on to say the number of names together were about 120 men and brethren. This scripture, Old Testament, must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, which was guided them that took Jesus. Now some people say Peter took this upon himself to offer the next few verses. I'm not overly sure about that. I don't think Peter had great... Uh, flexibility to take upon himself what he's going to do. But now the focus switches from apostles to disciples. As I say, an apostle can be a disciple, but a disciple cannot be an apostle. And 120 people are found in the upper room, which leads me to wonder, where are all the other people? Thousands were saved, thousands were healed, but only 120 are present. And yes, I understand it was you know, it was just a, t- a typical room, a typical room couldn't hold thousands of people. 
But I'm also wondering why so few people are found here. What does Christ say when he comes back? Will he find any faith on the earth? It's kind of suggested that when he comes back, faith will be scarce. Of course, when he comes back at the end of the tribulation, the Antichrist would have killed many people as well. Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled. One of 65 prophecies covering the first coming and the second coming which the Holy Ghost, by the mouth of David, type of Christ, spake before concerning Judas, which I think is from Psalm 69 or 68, off the top of my head, which was guide to them that took Jesus. He betrayed him. David is a type of Christ on many points, and David was betrayed as well by his wayward son. Verse 17, For he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. Nobody knew that Judas was a devil. Nobody knew that Judas was going to betray him. Peter, the so-called first pope, according to the Catholic Church, had no idea what was going on. And even John, his beloved disciple, his beloved apostle, his cousin, had to ask the Lord what was about to occur. There's no papal infallibility here. No one knew what was going on. They were just as much as in the dark as you and I would be. It wasn't for the Lord opening our eyes and ears to the word of God. He was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. He was a traitor from within. And of course, by this point in time, Judas has hung himself through the shame of betraying his master. Verse 18, that this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity. And falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst. And all his bowels gushed out. He hung himself on a cliff outside of Jerusalem and the rope probably snapped. And uh, as he fell, he burst asunder, he split in half, and all his bowels gushed out. You can't imagine the pitch that must have been. And I don't quite understand why or how Judas could have betrayed him. Yes, he's called a devil in John 6. And some people think he was a literal devil, a literal, uh, a literal seed from Satan. not sure about that. That is problematic. But what's more important to me is that the apostles had no idea what was going on. And after he kills himself, he splits in half. And maybe like the scene back in the Old Testament where the dogs licked up the blood of Jezebel, perhaps something similar happened. We're not told. I'm just speculating. Verse 19, And it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem, insomuch as that field is called in their proper tongue, Asaldama, that is to say, the field of blood. They all knew about it. And they probably thought, well, Judas got what he deserved. And maybe Judas saw through the Lord, as some mockers would have you believe, but it says he repented himself. He had great shame as to what he had done, but it was too late. And that goes back to two types of repentance in Scripture. Simon, the source, repented, Acts 8. That's the wrong kind of repentance. Whereas Peter repented, and that's the right kind of repentance. And on top of that, Judas repented to a priest, confessed to a priest, and there was no help to him. Much like the Catholic Church can't help you either. 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein, and his bishopric let another take. Just imagine being on the wrong side of history. Just imagine reading the word of God all your life, and I'm sure Judas was a good Jewish boy growing up. I'm sure Judas read his Tanakh. I'm sure Judas knew the Old Testament very well. And yet he had no idea that he was on the wrong side of history. Isn't that frightening? 
all your life you go through life thinking you're on the right side of history, you think you're in the will of God. And it turns out that Judas not only was going to betray him, but he was written about when it came to betraying him. And that's why it says in Matthew 7, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not done this? Have we not done that? And he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. That's why you've got to examine yourself to make sure you're saved, that you trust in the blood of Christ, and that you're only trusting in the blood of Christ to save you. But the theme now is going to switch from what do we do? We have to replace him. We're down to 11 men. And of course, you know the 12 apostles, mirror the 12 tribes of Israel. They're one man down, and uh, they're like a soccer match, I suppose. They lose a man, they have to replace him. And here, Peter wants to replace uh, Judas, but he has to be careful who he's going to choose. 21, wherefore of these men which have company with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection? They could have waited, as I say, to chapter 9. But of course, Peter wasn't told about Acts 9. Peter wasn't told about the church age. Peter wants to replace Judas. And quite rightly, they have to choose someone who was with them from the beginning. Not some third party. And that's why it says, beginning from the baptism of John, which would be Matthew 3, John 1, and of course Peter was a disciple of John, unto the same day, or that same day, that he was taken up, raptured from us, must one be ordained. Which goes back to what's at the beginning, how the 70 were quite possibly present at this time, hence why they're going to choose one of two people, found in 23. And they appointed to Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two thou hast chosen, that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And his place, of course, is hell. And 24, they prayed. No one man called the shots. They prayed as a group. 26, and they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles, which makes number 12. So I'm going to stop there today. That has covered chapter 1 from Acts 1. And maybe next time I'll do a very brief follow-up to Acts chapter 1. But you see already that Peter's taken upon himself to replace Judas. And they, the group, have prayed. And they, the group, have chosen Matthias. And Matthias becomes number 12. But let me say this. After this chapter, I don't think Matthias is found throughout the book of Acts. But he was chosen. He was one of the seven. He was a faithful brother. And he's going to join the apostles to spread the word of God throughout the entire world. So 26 verses cover Acts chapter 1. And next time we'll look at Acts chapter 2.